Welcome to In the Oil Patch, presented by Shale Magazine, broadcasting from the Oilfield Expert Studios. Oilfield Experts, where you get the right products right now. In the Oil Patch is where, together, we explore topics that affect us all in oil, gas, business, and in your community. Every week, your host, Kim Bellotto, will visit with the movers and shakers in this fast-paced industry. You'll hear from industry experts, elected officials, and many more right here on In the Oil Patch. And welcome to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. I'm your host, Kim Bellotto, and today we have a great show lined up for you. We will be joined by Roger Duncan and Michael Weber, authors of a recently released book, The Future of Buildings, Transportation, and Power. Before we catch up with Michael and Roger, I want to tell you about the latest issue of Shell Magazine, in which our cover, this issue, is dedicated to the women making a difference in the energy industry. As some of you guys might be aware, we are running a trivia question on who is the cover. I want to try to give some of our listeners an opportunity to win a $75 gift card to Club of the Child by guessing who is on the cover. And I'm going to give you a big hint right now. The cover is a female executive that works for Halliburton. Now, that's all you're going to get out of me. So if you want to take a guess at who you think is on the cover and win a $75 gift certificate to Club of the Child, please email us at radio at shellmag.com. Again, that's radio at shale, S-H-A-L-E-M-A-G.com. You never know, you might be the winner. And I also want to talk to you about TEAP, Texas Energy Advocates Coalition, and the Texas Alliance of Energy Producers are holding a mixer on December the 7th at 5.30 p.m. in Houston, Texas, in the Woodlands location. If you want tickets or want to learn more information about the upcoming mixer, please visit our Shell Magazine page. Again, that is Teak and Texas Alliance of Energy Producers Mixer slated for December the 7th at 5.30 p.m. Come join us at the Mixer and Network. And also, you'll have an opportunity to learn about what is going to happen this upcoming session. So Jason Modulin, the president of the Texas Alliance of Energy Producers, will be there to give us a legislative update. It's something that you don't want to miss. And we know that we are all tired of being stuck in our homes. So come join us for Mixer. This will be a sold out event. So please buy tickets now. For more information, go to shalemag.com. Again, that's S-H-A-L-E-M-A-G.com or visit our Facebook page, shalemag.com and you can purchase tickets straight from there. And now it's time to welcome on uh, my co-host, David Blackman, the editor of Shell Magazine. David, welcome to this week's show. Hey, it's another beautiful day in Texas. It is. Uh, you know, it seems like we are getting ready for the holiday weather in which it's cooler and uh, much more crisp. So I'm excited about moving into fall and winter and the holidays. Let's start talking about there's a lot of stuff going on, David, in oil. Always and gas. is. Oh, yes. Uh, well, we've looked pretty good uh, on an uptick in oil prices over the past two weeks. Considering everything that's been going on, COVID and the elections, and of course, the price of oil and natural gas. What do you think the factors uh, are that the market is responding to? Yeah, it's really been very interesting. We've, we've gone up like $5 a barrel um, since the 1st of November, uh, which is really strong. And, you know, there's a couple of things that are at play here. The first is, well, three things, three major factors I can think of. First is we have very strong recovering demand in Asia, including China and the Eastern Asia. China, Japan, South Korea, et cetera, Indonesia. Uh, while we're, we're going through a huge second wave of the virus here in the United States, um, it's, uh, it's already kind of passed uh, over in the Asian sector. And so, so their demand is coming back very strong. The, the second is the election results that it looks like the Republicans will con, uh, retain control of the Senate. Uh, 
uh, which will put a break on the worst impulses of the radical leftists in the Democratic Party. And then the third, I think the market responded very well this week to carry, uh, uh, Joe Biden's choice of uh, Janet Yellen uh, to be his Secretary of Treasury. Uh, Janet Yellen is a former chairman of the Federal Reserve Board uh, during the Obama years, and uh, she's widely viewed as a kind of a, a, a pragmatist and non-radical left-winger. And so the market responded very, uh, very solidly to that as well. Well, let's switch and talk a little bit about the rate count. Baker Hughes rate count showed a loss last week after eight straight weeks of gains. And so where do you think we are? Now, we've talked about the prices are up, but then we're losing rate count. Do you yeah. think this is the start of a new or a downward trend excluding Asia? Yeah, I, you know, I don't. I, I think this is probably just kind of a statistical anomaly which we see in these rate counts from time to time. As you mentioned, uh, uh, the Baker Hughes count had gone up for, I think, nine straight weeks, eight or nine. Um, but then if you also look at the Inveris daily rig count, their count during the same week was up by 25 rigs. And uh, they're, they're, they've gone, uh, the Inveris count has gone from about 280 to 395 since August. So that's a pretty strong increase in the rig count and, and the Baker Hughes count has gone up a hundred rigs as well. Uh, and I, I really think that one week uh, deal with the Baker Hughes count is gonna be a one week anomaly. And we're gonna see a, a steadily rising rig count through the end of this year. Uh, and maybe even into next year too, uh, given this increase in prices, you know, we may see uh, during the first quarter of next year, another hundred rigs uh, reactivated in the U.S. oil sector, as long as, as the price for West Texas Intermediate hangs above $40 a barrel. Uh, interesting. And how does this work with, okay, so, uh, you know, we've had a, a, we know that the the Biden administration has talked about day one, they're going to sign um, this no more fracking on federal right. lands. How does this affect the rig count everywhere else? So, so the listeners understand this is just they're talking about federal lands, but that's a large part, but it doesn't mean it's going to affect Permian Basin, Eagle Ford, and other shale plays that are not on federal lands. So break that down. Yeah, so, well, it will affect the Permian Basin in southeast New Mexico. About uh, half of the uh, land holdings in southeast New Mexico is on federal lands. And so, but it's going to be a delayed impact, okay? Because what's going to happen is companies already have their existing lease agreements with the federal government on most of that acreage. And those lease agreements grandfather in the regulations at the time when the leases were signed. And so they're going to be able to continue operations uh, on those, those federal lands where they have pre-existing leases. What it will impact is any future leasing on federal lands. Okay. And, and so it's going to be an impact mainly in the Rocky Mountains, uh, Colorado, Wyoming, Montana, Nevada, Utah, you know, the Rocky Mountain West. Is, is really very heavily uh, federal leases, New Mexico as well. And uh, in Texas itself, Texas proper, and the, which is two thirds of the Permian Basin, uh, there will be virtually no impact other than if you have a lease, uh, you know, on a federal air base or in Texas, you know, most of the wells drilled, what's so interesting to me is most of the federal wells drilled in Texas over the past 20, 25 years have been in Falcon Lake on the border with Mexico on the Rio Grande River. Uh, there, there's been quite a bit of drilling 
in the lake itself, which of course is federal, federally governed waters. So it's, but otherwise very little impact in Texas at all. Well, and I did want to clarify for the listeners, we are not in any way insinuating that Biden has won the election. We're not making a statement one way or another, just asking what would happen if he was the one who was elected. Let's switch and talk about the news this week. Oil storage levels in Cushing, Oklahoma, the hub is on the rise again too. So why are these prices rising? Is inventory rising as well? And that why are these prices still rising yeah. if inventories are rising too? Like that makes no sense. Yeah, that I mean you're right. That is usually a, a, a bearish factor on prices. And I think that uh, what's happening here is that you know we've had in the U.S. Uh, lower demand here as as the COVID restrictions are coming back into play, particularly in in states like California and Michigan and New Jersey and New York. Uh, and so you're see, seeing the amount of driving be be impacted. And, and that means lower demand for gasoline. And uh, that's all happened in the past month. And it takes a while for this kind of stuff to work its way through the system. So refiners, you know, already had their stocks on hand to be refined. And they've continued to, to you know, refine all that crude oil into gasoline and diesel fuel. While at the same time, demand in the U.S. for transportation fuel has been declining over the past month. And, and so that just means the inventories are going up on onshore facilities like Cushing, probably at the Port of Corpus Christi as well, which is uh, the second biggest oil storage facility now in the United States. But I think, you know, over the next month or so, we're probably going to see the, the inventories at Cushing and Corpus Christi and the Port of Houston actually fall uh, as a result of all of this working its way through the system and the refineries will be adjusting to, to lower demand levels as we go through this next round of COVID restrictions, unfortunately. Well, you know, and that's what's so hard to understand. And that's why I guess our show is so popular is, you know, we, in our three little segments here, we talked about how rig count is going down, but demand is going up. And then we're also discussing yeah. how, uh, it's very hard to understand inventory versus market versus right. global and how they the all rig count together. And, yeah. Thank goodness we're here to break it down for our listeners. Exactly. And uh, help them to, to navigate through these very uh, unsure waters of uh, the oil and gas. Tell me something. Yeah. 2021, the first quarter. Are we in the same predicament we are right now, or do we see a little bit of light and more demand? Well, you know, so much will depend on, of course, the outcome of the not just the presidential race uh, and all these court challenges, uh, but also the outcome of the two Senate runoff elections in Georgia, which take place in early January. If uh, the Republicans can win one of those two or both of them, then they will have control of the Senate, and it will put a break on radical legislation coming over from the House, which we know will be coming from the Democratic majority there. It will also, you know, put a break on some of the excesses uh, that we can anticipate uh, from a Biden-Harris administration. But like I said, you know, I think as, as Biden has gone about naming his cabinet picks and other senior advisors, the radical left in the Democratic Party has probably been very disappointed because he's naming a bunch of globalists like Yellen and like John Kerry as his climate change czar, whatever that means. But they're globalists. They're not radical left-wing communists like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. So it's, it's 
shaping they up might, to be very interesting, but but just so much depends on what Biden decides to do if he's so we'll wait. Well, David, that's all the time we have for this segment. Look forward to talking to you again next week. When we return from break, we'll be joined by Roger Duncan and Michael Weber, who wrote a book recently called The Future of Building Transportation and Power. You're listening to an Oil Patch Radio Show, and we'll be right back. Hi, folks. Alvin Bailey here. Did you know Agreco is proud to sponsor in the Oil Patch Radio Show? Agreco has served Texas oil fields for over 10 years, supporting producers with temporary power to get their product to market. When utility power is not available, Agreco is your reliable alternative. They service everything from pump jacks with a single 200-kilowatt unit to massive gas processing facilities requiring 50 megawatts or more. Agreco is your dedicated engineering partner for diesel and natural gas generators, as well as battery power solutions. Call Agreco today at 1-800-AGRECO. That's 1-800-A-G-G-R-E-K-O. And now it's time to welcome on our guests, Roger Duncan and Michael E. Weber. Gentlemen, welcome to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Now, to give you guys a proper introduction, you all have just written a book. It's titled The Future of Buildings, Transportation, and Power. And it's a a book of what we might be able to expect in the future when we're talking about uh, energy right now. Obviously, we're in a place where uh, the elections are somewhat done, or maybe not done. Who knows? But Joe Biden has discussed a lot about the future of energy. So has President Trump. Two different philosophies, two different ends. But a lot of it has been on the future of how buildings will look, what will our transportation look like, and what will power look like in the future. So um, I wanted to invite you guys on the show today to talk a little bit about this book that you guys have have put out. But before we get started on talking about the actual book, Roger, tell us a little bit about yourself. You know, what made you want to write the book and, you know, how do you how do you fit into writing a book about the future of buildings, transportation and power? Well, I, uh, my background uh, led me into a career that dealt a lot with buildings and transportation and power. Um, I started out as a politician. I uh, was elected to the Austin City Council several decades ago. And uh, at that time, we focused a lot on starting energy conservation programs and renewable energy programs. I returned to the city and uh, worked over several city departments, such as green building, uh, dealing with the building structures of the city and transportation planning. And then uh, the last decade I was with the city, I was with the municipal electric utility, Austin Energy, and I retired as general manager of Austin Energy. Uh, During my last couple of years is when I met uh, Michael, really, who was on the city's electric utility commission and uh, so when I retired, uh, Michael and I got together over at the University of Texas at the Energy Institute. And uh, we ended up uh, writing this book on a topic that we were both interested in and had been in uh, areas we had been involved with for many years. Excellent. Michael, uh, also give us an understanding of uh, where you have been, your credentials, and what made you want to write the book as well. Great. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm a professor at the University of Texas, so I do a lot of research and teaching on energy systems. 
And I also work with industry. I have launched several startups in the clean energy space or mentored startups in the clean energy space and advised or taught the largest energy companies in the world. And for the last few years, I've actually been based in Paris, France, where I'm the chief science and technology officer for Engie. Engie is one of the world's largest energy companies. And I run their research innovation program. So I'm in the large corporate world. I've been in the small corporate world and also in academia. Those are really used from my path. But decades of engineering is where I come from primarily energy systems engineering. So we are going to talk about the book that you guys created, but I do want to, you know, just divulge or, you know, disclose that earlier I asked either one of you guys, the scientists are typically who makes assumptions on oil and gas or energy. I'm not saying anything against what you guys have done or anything, but neither one of you are actual scientists in this, and I want to divulge that to the listeners because your book is very interesting and it makes you wonder. It reminds me of when I was a kid watching uh, The Jetsons, and I love that show, by the way, who, to think that you know we potentially could be on that type of a, a scenario going down that road is is very interesting and actually it's pretty exciting but that was a cartoon and now we're going to talk about your book because is there that possibility and from what I've read from your book there's a lot of potential here that we could be looking at something amazing in the future in, in how we go about looking at the energy transition if you will your first chapter energy efficiency megatrend uh, it will govern technology trends in the future. And so I want to ask you guys, what is the energy efficiency megatrend? Michael, you want to take that? Sure, happy to talk about it. It's one of the sort of central themes of the way Roger and I look at the future based on what we've seen from the past and the present. And we think it's a trend that is essentially fundamental to society, which is humans are always looking for better ways to do things. And this shows up over the course of millennia and centuries as we've looked for better fuels and technologies, for example, we've often pushed for more efficient forms of everything. And it could be as simple as the light bulbs we have today are more efficient than the light bulbs we had a decade ago, the cars are more efficient, different industrial processes, refineries are more efficient. So efficiency is something that happens in a continuous way because there are so many economic and environmental benefits from it. And we don't see that energy efficiency megatrend stopping anytime soon. We we think that we're sort of stays on as one of the fundamental drivers of what we can expect for the future. Now, also in your book, you guys go into now some details of what we can really expect. And so for our listeners who really want to get a glimpse of what they believe might be happening in the future when we talk about this energy transition and being more efficient, it's a good book for, for, for anyone to go in and pick up. But I want to talk specifically about the building trends you guys are saying in your book the buildings are going to be way more efficient, energy efficient, and that they'll be using robots, artificial intelligence for design and engineering that will lend to just remarkable things happening. Give me a vision of what is a sustainable building practice. Well, there are um, there are several sustainable building practices when you look at the, the buildings as a whole in terms of the efficiency of the building and heating and cooling. Uh, uh, today we do it uh, essentially with uh, insulation and the windows and the building materials and structures themselves. And uh, in the future, there will just be a continuous improvement in some of these areas. Uh, nanotechnology is going to give us the ability to have much more advanced uh, insulation in our buildings. Uh, we're going to have windows that uh, can respond to light and electrical signals and and uh, change the shading and such in the building. Um, and there are numerous 
other um, materials and appliance changes in air conditioning, heat pumps, and so forth that will uh, uh, make the buildings both more energy efficient and water efficient in their operation and maintenance going forward. Now, these buildings, you're also talking about that they're going to be smarter through sensors and uh, using the Internet of all things, that they're also going to potentially be able to be self-sufficient through their power, solar, and other on-site generation technology. So these buildings, and, and, you know, it's so strange when we talk about the election, President Trump was talking about how they want to rebuild these buildings with these tiny little windows. But this stuff is, and, and Biden talks about it, we really need smart buildings, right? And is this some of what he's talking about, that these buildings will be really energy efficient and, and things that are more futuristic? We have to take a quick break. When we return, I want to get on that topic you're listening to in the Old Patch Radio Show, and we'll be right back. Shale Oil & Gas Business Magazine provides services like print advertising and digital marketing. Our digital advertising services include website, email, radio, video, and social media. Shale also provides specialized web services from website management to search engine optimization and social media management. Visit our website, shalemag.com. Once again, that's shale, S-H-A-L-E, mag, M-A-G.com to learn more. And we're back. You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. Our guest today is Roger Duncan and Michael E. Weber, who recently wrote a book called The Future of Buildings, Transportation, and Power. And before the break, guys, we were talking a little bit about the future of buildings. And um, there's been a lot of discussion between President Trump and uh, President-elect Biden, if he if he is elected, on what they believe the future of buildings hold. So quickly, I just wanted to ask you guys Tell me a little bit about more. So your vision is that buildings will think for themselves. They will be so efficient and they'll use uh, artificial intelligence and everything, the Internet, that uh, these buildings will be self-manageable. We won't have to do anything. Is that correct? There's two ways to think about buildings in the United States or anywhere in the world. There are the buildings that already exist, which mm-hmm. in the United States is like 100 million households and maybe another 100 million other buildings, office buildings, warehouses, that kind of thing. So we have many buildings that already exist. And because we're growing with the economy and the population, we are building new buildings as time goes on. And so we can think of the new building versus the retrofit building as two different sets of problems. But certainly we can imagine that as we build new stuff, we can build it better than we did before. This we is can true. have better insulation and windows like Roger mentioned, just to improve the energy efficiency, but also better devices. And a lot of times this shows up just as comfort and control, better thermostats today than we used to have, automatic lighting, that kind of thing. Also, some security systems to protect our home with automatic cameras. But we could also have smarter controls that don't air condition an entire house all day long if we're never in there, but maybe it's more fine-tuned to um, control the temperature for the rooms we're actually in or going to use and that kind of thing. So there's opportunity to make our buildings smarter with smarter windows, smarter appliances, smarter heating and cooling, and that would achieve better performance and better air quality and lower energy bills. So it has a lot of benefits for the consumer and for the environment. So we anticipate that will happen for the new buildings. And then the harder question is like, well, what are those newer devices can we implement in the older buildings? That's also a challenge. And that would be something great if it materialized. Let's switch gears and talk about chapter five in which you're talking about transportation. Tell me a little bit about on that chapter, 
you guys are talking about the way that transportation will be changing, if you will, moving away from petroleum and uh, to, of course, uh, curtail the oil demand in like cars and vans and trucks. And they're all going to be electrified within the next few decades, and we're going to take advantage of self-driving. So here we go with the you know George Jetson cartoon. Tell me, how realistic is that, and what do you see in the future with that? Well, uh, transportation is a very large area, and there's various uh, many modes of transportation. And I think that what we're seeing is a definite move toward electrification of a uh, significant portion of the vehicle sector, particularly cars and sedans, and uh, light duty trucks and some heavy duty trucks. Uh, the battery uh, situation is improving rapidly in that area. And I think almost all the major automakers now are moving toward electrification of light duty vehicles in particular. Uh, other areas of transportation, aviation, shipping and so forth, it's much more difficult to wean off petroleum. Uh, However, you're starting to see some electrification in uh, air taxis and in light aviation uh, usage, um, but uh, we do not really see uh, electrification of large commercial airliners or the large container ships that move uh, our uh, goods around the world. Those are areas that are going to have to be uh, dealt with with other forms of liquid uh, fuels. And I think I read in your book, Michael, about, you know, you guys are discussing also that we can move in that direction, but what will be harder to move away from are, you know, planes and things that really we haven't quite figured out how to get those a little bit more greener, right? Those will, those will take longer than cars and uh, self-driving cars and uh, and getting the more of the consumer day-to-day off of gas-burning fossil fuel-type cars, Correct. Yeah, I see there, if you look within transportation sector, as Roger said, there's different elements and there are some parts of the transportation sector that are very easy to electrify, like light duty vehicles, small cars or trains are easy to electrify. And there are some parts of the transportation sector that really like liquid fuels, especially heavy duty aviation or long haul aviation, right. um, long haul shipping, trans-oceanic mm-hmm. shipping, for example, and some long haul trucking, that kind of thing. Um, and that's where liquid fuels with their energy density which is far superior to batteries, really adds value. It would be very difficult to electrify, frankly. Well, Some look, shorter regional flights on planes could be electrified, um, but the long-haul planes are hard to do. So, so we're going to have to figure that out in the future. When we get back from break, I'm going to get back on this topic, and then I want to get into the future of the whole entire transition that you guys are discussing as well. You're listening to in The Old Patriot Show. We'll be right back. Do you know what artificial intelligence can do for your operation? It's probably time to find out. With Aspen Tech Software, your business can harness the full power of AI to achieve new levels of performance. Aspen Tech's leading-edge solutions are a critical part of the world's largest oil and gas, chemical, and engineering companies, helping them improve safety, sustainability, reliability. Drawing on decades of industry experience, Aspen Tech is using AI, machine learning, and predictive analytics to help companies digitally optimize the design, operation, and maintenance of their facilities. Find out how Aspen Tech can help you win tomorrow with the technology of today. Learn more at www.aspentech.com forward slash AI.
And we're back. You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. Our guest today is Roger Duncan, Michael Weber, authors of a book called The Future of Buildings, Transportation, and Power. And Michael, before the break, we were kind of talking about getting off of fossil fuel gas burning vehicles, if you will, and now into these electric vehicles. And uh, we were talking about that might be a little bit easier change because I think consumers want it and they're buying less cars because they're using more like Ubers and things like that. However, I do believe that there are still problems with their batteries and things like that. However, how are we were talking about the future on larger type of vehicles and, and can they make the change as easy. So so continue on with what are we going to see in the future, in your yeah, opinion? There's, there's a real difference between light-duty surface transportation, like cars, and heavy-duty aviation, like long-haul planes, where long-haul planes really like the benefits of the energy density of liquid fuels, which are jet fuel. And for cars, electrification is much easier because we tend to drive them shorter distances and they're lighter. And to build on what Roger was saying, the automotive manufacturers are really invested in electric cars. And if you just look at Volkswagen, who made their announcement as we were going to press, they've announced $80 billion of research into electrification over five years. That's $16 billion a year. And they essentially are saying they will only make electric cars available a certain number of years from now, like five years from now. So we might get to a point where consumers will only have electric vehicles as the option for their small cars because that's all the manufacturers make. But if you look at aviation or ocean shipping, these longer haul, heavier things, where electricity is not as good a fit, liquid fuels will play an important role for a while. And then it might be liquid fuels as we've done before, jet fuel, diesel, that kind of thing. Or it might be manufactured fuels, manufactured from hydrogen. So that's that's the way they'll have to go because batteries are not a good fit for big planes. Do you also believe in the future that will it be affordable by everyone? Or is it right now we know that most of these uh, EV vehicles and transportation are really not affordable for the average person. Is this going to change in the future? think so yeah because the the teslas of the world are making the, the more mass consumer models they start off with the expensive sports car then the expensive sedan then they have the mass produced one and then when a volkswagen um, comes out volkswagen doesn't make luxury brands they make the middle class brands I, I think it'll be affordable so I, that trend seems assured the harder one to predict is whether electric aviation or the synthesized fuels for aviation will be as affordable what's the price curve on that given up decades it'll be price competitive as well you know just as a a consumer you know it's mind-boggling to me that um you know there are so many cars on the road and to think that in the future and somewhat in the near future we're going to have filling stations uh where everywhere are they going to be in our homes will new homes be built with filling stations in in their garages yes we do already okay Uh, so all uh, new homes coming out are going to have that model as well your your home has a filling station in it uh, so does mine. Uh, when I bought an electric vehicle uh, eight years or so ago, I didn't buy a charging station. I plugged it into the electrical outlet that was already okay. installed in okay. my garage. Okay. And uh, that's the same with electric vehicles everywhere. I mean, they charging stations work fine and they're faster and, and such, but every building in the, the world just about has a filling station in it right now. Okay, so this won't be a problem. Let's switch gears then and talk about the changing power industry. So, you know, in reading your book, it was kind of discussing that we need to move away from where we've been and look more into the future of technologies that are evolving and coming along. Briefly tell me what you mean when you're talking about this changing, if you will, of the power industry. 
you know, journalists look at events in terms of who, what, where, when, and why. And if you look at the electric power industry today, all of that is changing. Uh, the fuels are changing. Uh, the reasons we use electricity and expanding electrification is changing. Uh, the location of our power plants are changing from large power plants to more decentralized on-site generation taking place. Uh, energy storage is changing the time at which we use electricity. So uh, change is occurring quite rapidly now in all of these sectors. Um, and we see a general movement away from carbon fuels and decarbonization and a general movement toward decentralization of the power. I think everyone should be an environmentalist and want to do things more efficiency, rather it's clean up our oceans, higher air quality, better air quality. What does this green energy solution mean to you guys? Like, what do you, what do you see? I know everyone is hearing uh, net zero carb, energy transition. There's many energy companies and service companies moving to that model. And so my question, though, is so some of the stuff that you guys in the book are discussing is you guys uh, believe that the clean energy solution has already been it's here. We're going to go into break, but go ahead, Mike. You got about a minute and a half, and then after that, I'm going to have to take a break, and we'll pick it up on the other side. When I think about clean energy solutions, I think about a suite of technologies or a mix of options. There's no one answer um, in how we maximize the good and minimize the bad. And every single fuel technology has upside benefits and downside risks. And so we want to minimize those downside risks. And those impacts are carbon dioxide emissions, of course, but there's also other air pollutants, land use impacts, water impacts cost, reliability, you name it. So we have to take all those factors into mind and try to come up with the options that have the smallest land footprint, smallest water footprint, and lowest emissions. That's what we want, the mix of those options that give us that. And that mix varies from place to place. The answer in France is different than in Florida, which is different than the Great Plains. Florida has sunshine but not wind. The Great Plains has wind. France has biomass or other options. And we can even think of like Iceland, which has all that geothermal energy. Well, not everyone has geothermal energy at the surface. So easily accessible. So to design a suite of options that has the mix of the best, it is regionally specific. And that will vary from place to place and from time to time. That makes a lot of sense because when you look at Midland, Texas or Permian Basin, there's a lot of the wind turbines out there as well as in South Texas around the coastline. And then you look in places like San Antonio and other areas that are more urban and you see a lot more solar farms and solar panels going up. When we get back from break, I want to get a little bit more detailed into these specific future resources, if you will. You're listening to on the Oil Patch Radio Show, and we'll be right back. Hi, folks. Alvin Bailey here. Did you know Agreco is proud to sponsor in the Oil Patch Radio Show? Agreco has served Texas oil fields for over 10 years, supporting producers with temporary power to get their product to market. When utility power is not available, Agreco is your reliable alternative. They service everything from pump jacks with a single 200 kilowatt unit to massive gas processing facilities requiring 50 megawatts or more. Agreco is your dedicated engineering partner for diesel and natural gas generators as well as battery power solutions. Call Agreco today at 1-800-AGRECO. That's 1-800-A-G-G-R-E-K-O. Hi, I'm Kim Bilotto, wanting to talk to you about how to age gracefully. 
as a woman, my appearance is important to me. It makes me feel good about myself when I feel I'm taking care of myself. And I have been visiting a woman for many years who has helped me with my wrinkles, my skin's elasticity. And you know, a lot of people think it's really just involving women, but it's not. Many, many men also seek treatments as they see the aging process occurring. I visit Cynthia, my friend of many years, who is a master injector for San Antonio Cosmetic Surgery. I feel very comfortable going to her and allowing her to just do her work on me. Pick up the phone, call Cynthia, make an appointment, and see what she can do for you because it has taken years off of me. So if you want a free consultation with Cynthia, give them a call at 210-641-4320. Again, the number is 210-614-4320. Or you can visit their website at sanantoniocosmeticsurgery.net. Be sure to tell them that Kim within the Oil Patch Radio Show sent you. And we're back. You're listening to in the Oil Patch Radio Show. Our guest today is Roger Duncan and Michael Weber, authors of a recently released book, The Future of Buildings, Transportation, and Power. I want to get back on the topic of clean energy solutions because, Michael, before the break, you were talking about how it's going to require a whole lot of everything. And we do see there's solar in certain places, there's wind turbines, there's hydro, there's all kinds of emerging energy sources. And I think it really you know, does depend on uh, nuclear, what you like, what you see works for you in the future. And a lot of people who do research come up with different ideas of what they like. My question, though, is, you know, we know population-wise that the world is still lacking about 30% of the world's population does not even have access to basic energy resources, meaning clean water, access to energy. Their lifespan is cut shorter. They have higher mortality rates with their infants. So when we start eliminating and start putting these really nice, but seems like kind of expensive things here in the United States, and then we have other countries, they're very limited in how they're looking at energy efficiency. We still have countries that are building right now coal plants that are coming online. How do we as a world figure out that demand of who gets access to energy, who doesn't in the way of this future clean energy solutions? Are we limiting our ability to help the world when we know that the demand is going to be up in the future for energy? Are we limiting that ability to help those countries by focusing on how we're going to make ourselves more energy efficient here. And then even with that, I I want to try to understand how this whole thing plays into the big picture. I'm trying to figure out how do we solve the world's problems. Even though we're going to get more energy efficient, isn't there a moral case, if you will, for we have to continue on oil and gas because it is the cheapest and most reliable resource still today? So I think it's a great question about energy access. There's about a billion people in the world who don't have access to electricity, but there's about 3 billion people in the world who don't have access to reliable electricity. And this is a problem. And there are a couple million people a year who die prematurely from indoor air pollution of using cow dung and biomass with Mm -hmm. primitive cook stoves and the soot smoke that puts out as a real problem. So we have a moral obligation to help with energy access and we have a moral obligation to clean up our act. And we have an obligation to think about future generations and not leaving a legacy of a warmer world and that kind of thing. We have to balance all of these. And that means we need to come up with better solutions and they need to be not only higher performing, but cheaper. Cheaper. And that's where the trends of technology are very important. And the thing about oil and gas is oil and gas are very cheap for certain applications, but they're not cheap for all applications. In the power sector, wind and solar are already cheaper than gas, for example. But and hold on, but can, you, can, but can you create, can, can those things be created without oil and gas? 
Yes, so you, if you have heavily electric manufacturing, absolutely. So that, by the way, uh, I don't think Roger and I anticipate oil and gas become zero in the future because there are things that oil and gas can do that are very hard to replace, in particular around chemicals and feedstocks, right. as well as some of the aviation needs we talked about, although maybe hydrogen can replace, and also high-grade industrial heat. So there's some processes where oil and gas are really valuable. But there are a lot of low-grade uses of oil and gas, which is to make heat for cooking or water heating or home heating, other things where it's really easy to replace with other cleaner options. So we, we see that uh, there's an opportunity to clean up the mix and take technological leadership in uh, part of the U.S. position and then export our capability know-how in a way that improves the, the condition for humans around the world while lowering the cost and improving the reliability of the energy. So these things all work together, and that's usually how energy transitions work. Which mm -hmm. is we move towards higher performing options that are both cleaner and cheaper. That's and you do. I want to compliment you guys. You in your book do recognize these things, and so it is in there that you still need them. But I want to make it clear because a lot of our listeners will just take we need to move, and oil and gas is killing the planet. I'm like, you know, you have to look at the whole big pictures. All I'm trying to get us to get to before we look at the future is coming and these great things are coming online and we want to be there to cover them and we need them but we also need to talk about that we're not quite there to flip a switch and all of these things go away either and that seems to be the one thing that people always seem to forget roger i want to talk to you a little bit about the future of the clean energy solution what have we not covered in here i know you guys talk a lot about solar and wind but you also talk about other energy resources. What else is in your clean energy solution that we have not talked about yet? Well, I, I want to go back to a point that Michael raised earlier in, in your question about how we solve the world's problems and such. And it really is you solving the world's problems one region at a time. And the regional energy plans are important because um, it, you, I don't think you can simply say that you need oil or gas or wind or solar or coal or whatever, the answer is that each region has different renewable energy resources that they first need to look at. Uh, regions need to look at what their energy loads are and how to do them more efficiently. And some regions will find that if they really want to have an economy with no emissions, they're going to have to use nuclear mm -hmm. or small modular reactors. That's right. Others are going to find that uh, there is some niche of their economy uh, like high temperature manufacturing and such that they need to burn a fossil fuel in order to accomplish. Uh, but what I think the solution is, is to look at each region and optimize the cleanest resources and the most economical resources to come together with a match that fits that region. And that's what I think we'll see happening in the future. And you guys, again, your book is a, a wonderful book to read, and it really it is very well written and fairly written. But I also want to say that, you know, as we, we close out the show, there are issues, I think, with everything, rather it's oil and gas, solar or wind. We have rolling blackouts in California. We have a lawsuit in Georgetown in reference to solar power. And I just think that this is a growing situation. It's going to continue to evolve, like you guys are talking about in your book. But I also urge everyone that we need everything and and the demand is only going to go up correct the demand for energy is only going to go up on the planet and so i think we need everything and getting greener and smarter is definitely something that we need to look at but i just worry about when we discuss energy and our needs we need to start with a basis point that we're not ready to turn any energy source off whatsoever because that could be even more disastrous than 
uh, where we're heading, correct? I think this uh, this analogy of turning an energy option on or off isn't quite right because these things unfold over decades. And that's really a timeline that Roger and I are thinking on that nothing happens tonight or tomorrow. Although COVID did show that there can be rapid changes to the energy. This system. is true. <laughs> that's not what we're anticipating. We really anticipate that there'll be sort of these graceful curves as coal plants retire in the United States, which is already happening, that they are not built anew. Now, the story might be different in Vietnam or, or China. And as those plants retire, we don't build new coal plants, but we might build other things like wind, solar, storage, and gas. And so there is a smooth transition that happens over decades. It might feel unsmooth for the companies going bankrupt or changing. Mm -hmm. And then it might feel unsmooth for ones growing quickly on the other side. So none of this is turning a, a, an appliance on or off like a switch. It's a really slow, expensive transition over decades. Expensive meaning trillions deployed and then a lot of wealth created and jobs created along the way. So Perfect. nothing happens suddenly in the energy industry. It's the, evolving. The innovation is continuous. The efficiency is continuous. And that means the United States that even though our population has grown by 30 million and our economy has grown by trillions in the last decade, our energy consumption has stayed level, which is interesting. The global story is growth in energy, as well as growth in energy efficiency, as well as improving energy access. So we, we don't have enough atmosphere, frankly, to let everybody have as much energy we have today per person in the United States, if it's the same form as what we did a decade ago. It will have to be cleaner or we'll run out of places to put the waste. So we have an obligation to increase that access, but clean it up so we don't scorch the earth. And I think that's the trend we see happening right now. Excellent, Michael, in closing. And Roger, where can our listeners get a copy of your book? Uh, it's available on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble, and uh, hopefully you can order it from your bookstore. It's available just about everywhere. Well, thank you for joining us on today's In the Oil Patch radio show. In the Oil Patch is where, together, we explore topics that affect us all in oil, gas, business, and in your community. Every week, your host, Kim Bilotto, will visit with the movers and shakers in this fast-paced industry. You'll hear from industry experts, elected officials, and many more right here on In the Oil Patch.